You are about to take part in a session from a Discipleship Bible School held at YWAM Richmond in the spring of 2022, and we are so grateful you are here. So much prayer went into every element of this course, from recruitment to content editing, and we are convinced you will leave this knowing God a little deeper. The Discipleship Bible School, or DBS, is an opportunity to survey the entirety of Scripture to discover God's redemptive plan for all of humanity. Over the course of 12 weeks, teachers explored the Bible section by section, not only to deepen students' understanding of what was written then, but reveal what we are being invited into now. If you like what you are hearing, visit ywamva.org to discover what courses we are offering, ways you can journey with our team, and other content created to help you know God and make Him known. Everything you hear was created as a step of faith by a team of YWAMers and volunteers who felt God inviting them to capture the DBS in its entirety, over 120 hours of content. If this content blesses you, consider supporting future schools and content by giving at ywamrichmond.org donate. Thank you so much for listening, and we can't wait for you to experience God today. In this first session, we're going to take all three of the short epistles of John. Now, two of them are the shortest books in the New Testament, so, uh, and they only like 12 or 14 verses. Um, and once we get to them, we will really have covered an awful lot of their contents already in 1 John because they don't have an awful lot that's unique in them, except they are, uh, there's something unique about the fact that they address certain individuals. Uh, but John's first gospel is not addressed to anyone in particular. Obviously, it's, it's addressed to Christians. That's made plain in it. But where they were from or who they are, if they're in a particular church, we do not know. It has many of the themes from the gospel of John presented and developed. And some would say it might even have been a sermon because it isn't really written like an epistle. It doesn't say who the author is. You know, epistles begin, you know, John, you know, an apostle of Jesus Christ to so-and-so. And it doesn't end like an epistle. It's just, I mean, it just has existed as a document from the early church, which might well have simply been a sermon based on the gospel of John, because it's the themes from the gospel of John that are pressed in the book. So we might just look at it that way as a, you know, John having written the gospel for unbelievers because he did say he wrote the gospel so that people would believe. I'm sure he wrote it for the benefit of the church as well, but he did say it in, in John chapter 20 and uh, verse 30, he says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So he's writing for the benefit of people who need to come to belief and have life in Christ. In 1 John, he uh, is almost certainly the same author. The author is anonymous, so we're not, we don't know that for sure, but everything is so similar in the way he talks, and it's always been assumed by the church that John wrote it. It would appear that he's writing an application, perhaps, of the things that he wrote to non-Christians in the gospel and applying them to the lives of Christians, a Christian audience. Now, 
there was apparently some kind of false teaching that he was concerned about because he talks about how the spirit of Antichrist has already risen. And he, he basically says everybody who denies that Jesus is the Christ is Antichrist. He says that in chapter 2. In chapter 4, he says whoever denies that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of the Antichrist, the spirit of Antichrist. Now, the question of whether Jesus came in the flesh or not is an interesting controversy. Who denies that Jesus came in the flesh? You'll find also in, chap in 2 John, in that short epistle which comes after 1 John, he also mentions that false teachers, antichrists, deny that Jesus has come in the flesh. Now, does this mean that Jesus, they deny that Jesus came to earth as a human being? Are they denying that Jesus was a historical character here in the flesh as a human being? Probably not, um, though it's hard to say. Sometime shortly after the first century, a heresy became very troublesome to the church for the next two centuries called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism was based on the Greek ideas that matter is evil and that uh, spiritual stuff is good. And, and so all spirits are good and all matter is evil. Now this, is, this would mean that the physical body is evil. It would also mean that demons are good because they're spirits. You know, good spirits, bad spirits, they're all good because uh, they're spirits. Spirit is good. And man has a spirit which is good but dwells in a body that's bad because it's physical. Now, we might say, yeah, I can see how the body would be seen as bad because my body has these desires that are sinful and so forth. But, but that's not, they didn't mean that the body was bad because it had sinful desires. It was bad because it was physical. The whole physical world was evil. And therefore, they denied that Jesus, at least the ones who were uh, you know, so-called Christian Gnostics, denied that Jesus actually existed in the physical realm. Uh, there was one group of Gnostics called the Docetists, who believed that Jesus was only a phantom, that he looked like a physical being. But he didn't leave footsteps, they thought. He was just, he's really just a spirit who looked human. And there's another form of Gnosticism called Corinthianism, which taught that Jesus was a man, an ordinary man, but he was not the same as the Christ, but that the Christ was a spiritual essence that came upon him at his baptism and left him before he died on the cross. And that's another form of Gnosticism. By the way, I've, I've run into people who've taught that in modern times. Actually, Gnosticism, one of the most ancient heresies in the church, has reappeared in various forms. Uh, some of it is, in, is uh, embedded in some forms of the New Age movement. Not all, not all New Agers hold it, but, but you will find among some New Agers uh, Serinthianism or Docetism, both of which are branches of Gnosticism. Now, because John emphasizes that Jesus came in the flesh and that people who deny that Jesus came in the flesh are not of God and they're Antichrist, uh, there has been some suggestion that maybe it's this Docetist or, or some other form of pre-Gnostic development of heresy that he's coming against. It's not clear. But we do know that in the Gospel of John, he did say at the very beginning in the prologue that the word was with God, the word was God. And then in verse 14, John 1, 14, he said, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He became a human being. Now, anyone who would deny that 
would fall under this category of one who denies that Jesus came in the flesh, whether they're taking a more Gnostic stance or whether they're denying that Jesus is a historical character and ever lived, which no one who's very intelligent does, only very foolish people who don't know about historical evidences would make such a silly claim. But there would be perhaps people who say he did live as a man, but he wasn't God in the flesh. He was not the word who was God who was made flesh. So there's many ways for people to not deny that Jesus came in the flesh in the sense that John taught it, that, that he was God in the flesh, that he was the word who was God who became flesh. That, so if someone denied the deity of Christ, if they denied the historic existence of Christ, if they denied that uh, you know, Christ was fully physical or things like that, those are all different ways that this kind of denial could be viewed. And the important thing is that Jesus was a human. I mean, that God existed as a non-human for all eternity is not controversial among Christians and, and, uh, and even Jews. But that he actually became a man, that God could become a man and live among us and live a human life and die physically, shed blood, human blood for our sins. That's, uh, that's definitely a uniquely Christian idea and uh, many forms of uh, falsehood have sought to modify it or replace it. Anyway, that is the view that John speaks against in 1 John chapter 2 and chapter 4, and also in 2 John he brings this very thing up. Now, we see then that part of the reason he wrote was to protect his readers from heresy about Jesus. But he had other reasons for writing too. In fact, just as the Gospel of John tells us in the verse we read a moment ago, that it was written so that you might believe and you might have life through his name, John in 1 John tells us several times in different ways the reasons he wrote this epistle. We're, we are very seldom so fortunate when we're studying any epistle to have the author tell us very outright, this is why I'm writing this. Sometimes we have to deduce that from what it contains. But John repeatedly mentions, I wrote this because of this, for this reason. And one of the places, I mean, and there's several different reasons he gives. In 1 John 1, 3, he said, uh, we pro, uh, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you so that you may have fellowship with us. And in verse 4, and we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Uh, some manuscripts say so that your joy may be complete. Uh, it can go either way. But the point is, that the Christians may experience uh, fullness of joy. Now remember what Jesus said in the upper room. He talked about the need to obey him and keep his commandments and, and so forth. And he said, and these things I write unto you that you, your joy may be full. So it's the same kind of thing. Uh, the author is here writing to the Christians so that they can experience this fullness of joy and they can share fellowship with the apostles. Uh, in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, I'm writing these things to you so that you don't sin. Okay, that's another reason he's writing. So that you won't sin. People do sin, but he's trying to persuade them not to do so. In chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, he gives several reasons why he's writing to the different demographics in his audience. He said, I'm writing to you little children. By this, he probably does not mean literal children, although he could. I mean, there are children in the congregation. He might be addressing the little children, or he might be thinking in terms of people who are infant Christians, that is, newborn 
uh, believers. He says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Then he runs through the same three categories again. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. It's a little different than the first time. In verse 12, he said, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you, for his name's sake. Now he says, I'm writing to them, little children, because they have known the Father. Then he says, I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning, which is an exact repeat of what he said in verse 13 about them. And then he says, and I write to you, young men, because you're strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Now, again, he tells the young men both times, he's writing to them because they have overcome Satan. But the second time, he kind of amplifies that. Yeah, they've overcome Satan because they are strong, and the word of God abides in them. So he's actually writing to them because they're doing well. He's not writing to them because they're going astray. There are false teachers he wants to warn them against. But his audience is, for the most part, not succumbed. They know the Father. Their sins are forgiven. They're strong. They're, the Word of God is abiding in them. They've overcome Satan, probably meaning overcome Satan's attempts to corrupt the church. And they have stood on the word of God and prevented this. So again, we have these times he tells us why he's writing. Again, he does in chapter 2, verse 21. He says, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Now, I'm not writing to you because you're ignorant. I'm writing to you because I'm actually writing to you about things you already know. Now, why would he write to tell them things they already know? Well, that is something, you know, repetition is helpful. And to be reminded of things. You know, when I go to church and hear a sermon, I never hear, I have to say, after 60-something years in church and 50-something years as a Bible teacher teaching through the whole Bible, I never hear anything in church I haven't heard before. But I often hear things I need to remember. Uh, you know, I'm, I, I don't know when the last time was I ever heard a teacher or preacher say anything I didn't already know but that doesn't mean I don't gain from it. Uh, I can gain from being reminded of things that I've heard on other occasions. You know, in 2 Peter, he says the same thing about his readers. He said that, um, let me see where I want to start here. In 2 Peter chapter 1, uh, he says, uh, since I know, uh, let's see, <laughs> let me start, 2 Peter 1, 12. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. Okay, so I'm writing these things. You already know these things. But I'm writing so you'll be more firmly established. I think it right, he says, as long as I'm in this body, to stir up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. So he says at the end of verse 15, 2 Peter 1.15, Peter says, I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able uh, at any time to recall these things. So sometimes the apostle would write things to audiences that didn't, he's not telling them anything new. This isn't anything you don't know, but I don't, I want, I'm telling it so you'll know how important it is. So you'll remember it when I'm gone. So it's something that you'll be well established in. And that's what John says here too, when he says in chapter two, verse 21, I, I'm not writing something new to you. You know these truths already. Likewise, in chapter 5, 
at the end there, <clears throat> 1 John 5.13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So it's again at the end of the Gospel of John in chapter 20, he says, I write to you so that you may believe in Jesus Christ and have life. Now he's writing to Christians saying, I'm writing to you because you believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. I just want you to be assured of that. In fact, this book is, um, above all things, a book of assurance of salvation. There are things in the Bible that indicate that lots of people think they're Christians who aren't. For example, Jesus said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, he said, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We did many mighty works in your name. He said, I will say to them, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. Well, so these are people that Jesus never knew. They weren't really Christians, but they thought they were. They didn't only think they were Christian. They thought they were doing all kinds of work for God in his name. Now, I won't discuss the issues of how they managed to do that if they weren't real Christians. Maybe they faked it. Maybe they were deceived into thinking it was that. Uh, we don't know. Uh, but the point is, Jesus said there's a lot of people on the Day of Judgment who will have thought all along that they were Christian. And they'll, to their chagrin, learn that this is not the case and never was the case. In other words, there's false converts who have, in some cases, been given false assurance that they're saved. I believe our modern church in the West has especially generated a lot of these. And the reason is because we've watered down the gospel. We have not taught it the way Jesus taught it. We've not called people to repentance. We've, we've just told people to say a sinner's prayer. And the sinner's prayer, they hardly have any background for if, they, if, they don't, if they're not raised Christians and they're told to repeat these words. And it's something like, Jesus, come into my heart. I believe in you. You know, I want to go to heaven when I die kind of stuff none of which is part of the conversion process, except believing in Jesus, but accepting Jesus into your heart, there's nothing in the Bible about that, not a word. Uh, you know, going to heaven when you die, Jesus never preached about that, nor did Paul. There is such a thing, there's a teaching that we will die and go to be with the Lord, absent from the body, present with the Lord, we'll go to heaven when we die, but that was never presented in any of the presentations of the gospel by Jesus or the apostles. So, in others, we're preaching something like a carrot on a stick kind of thing. Come and get it. If you, uh, if you want the big gift, come and just, we'll make it real easy on you. Just raise your hand while every head is bowed and every eye is closed, and then we'll, uh, then we'll embarrass you and make you come forward, and then we'll make you say this little prayer, and then you can go away knowing you're going to heaven when you die. This is, does not resemble any procedures found in the Bible at all. Jesus called people to leave everything to follow him. He said, unless you've Whoever would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. There's some real commitment here that's required, and our, our modern preachers often do not preach it. And if you don't preach it, people won't know it. And if they respond to a gospel that doesn't tell them what it is they're supposed to do, they're not likely to do it. They won't even know they're supposed to do it. Many people are sitting in church thinking they are Christians, but they're not Christians in the sense that the Bible describes being a Christian. They're not disciples. It says in Acts 11:26, the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. In other words, the first time the word Christians was used, it was referring to a group of people that already were called by something else before that. They were called disciples. 
in the earlier chapters of Acts, they're always called the disciples, the disciples, the disciples. And then the disciples are called Christians in Antioch. They just got a new name, but not a new definition. A disciple, Jesus said, is if you continue in my words, you are my disciples. Indeed, that's the condition. <clears throat> He's making it very clear. There were people who thought they were disciples. So you're, you are my disciples indeed. You are truly my disciples if you continue my word, implying that if you don't, then you're not what I'm looking at and calling a disciple. A disciple is someone committed to following Jesus at whatever cost it is, denying yourself, taking up your cross, following Jesus. That's, that's the only kind of Christian the Bible knows about. It's not the only kind of Christian the modern church knows about. But the kind of Christians that the modern church knows about, in many cases, will stand before Christ and, and say, I, well, I, I, I accepted you into my heart. And Jesus said, I, don't, I never knew you. You never followed me. You were never committed to me. You, you just wanted to get a ticket. You wanted a ticket to heaven. That's all you wanted. And, you thought, and someone told you to get a free ticket. Just say these words and you get one. No, the kingdom of God is not in word, but in deed, Jesus said. Actually, Paul said that. But we need to know, how do we know we're really Christians? Well, that's what 1 John has written to answer that question. How do you know if you're really a Christian? Now, being a Christian is described in 1 John by a number of terms. Being born of God, God dwelling in you and you in God. Those are kind of terms he uses. Passing from death unto life. These are the terms that John uses for somebody who has become a true Christian. And he gives multiple tests of what it means to be a true Christian. Now, in the opening chapter, which is very brief, it's a very short chapter, only 10 verses, he talks about the need to um, have fellowship with God. Okay? This is not the main theme of the rest of the epistle. But he says, I'm writing this so that you can have fellowship with us. He says, our fellowship and us, we and you, no doubt John means me and my apostolic companions are we, and you are the people I'm writing to, the Christians. We, we apostles have seen and heard and touched Jesus. That's what he says in the opening verses. We saw him with our own eyes. We heard him with our own ears. Our hands have handled him. There's no question he was physical, by the way. He was not a phantom. And we know this, and we have fellowship with God because of this. And he says, I'm writing this so that you can have fellowship with us. That is, our fellowship is with the Father. You will have fellowship with the Father along with us. That's what he says. And, and he says, very early on there in the first chapter, um, and this is the message, verse 5, which we've heard of him and proclaimed to you that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Remember, he says, having fellowship with God, you need to stay where God is. He doesn't follow you into the darkness. You come out of the darkness and into the light where he is. God is light. There's no darkness in him. If you walk in darkness instead of the light and you say you fellowship with God, you're mistaken. In fact, you're lying. Whoever says he knows him, and does not uh, walk in light, but walks in darkness, is not telling the truth. We don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus, son, his son, cleanses from all sin. Now, what does it mean to walk in the light? Well, a number of things. Later on, he's going to say that whoever walks in the light loves his brother, and whoever hates his brother is in darkness. So obviously, walking in light involves being obedient to the great commandment Jesus gave to love your, your neighbor. But there's more to it than that because nobody does that perfectly. 
yeah, walking in the light does mean that we're supposed to be following the light that God has given us. It says in Psalm 119, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus' words give us light, guidance, you know, they direct our lives, our steps, our paths. But what if we don't do well? What if we stumble? And it's James in his epistle that says, in many things we all stumble. Now, James is an, the brother of Jesus and considered an apostle. And he says, we all stumble, even apostles do. But stumbling is not the same thing as walking. In fact, it's the opposite of walking. When I'm walking, I'm not stumbling. When I'm stumbling, I'm not walking. It's an interruption in walking. We walk in the light. We walk by faith. We walk in love. We walk in the spirit. These are all terms the Bible uses. But we stumble into sin. But when you stumble, I mean, just think of natural walking and natural stumbling. When you naturally are walking and you stumble, you probably tripped over something. You're down on the ground. It's not something you wanted to do. In fact, it was quite in, against your, your overall intentions. You were really intending to get from point A to point B without doing that. It was unplanned. It was an accident. You were, you were weak. You were inattentive. Something you know, tripped you up. And when you stumble, you're not happy about it. You're embarrassed. You look around and hope no one saw that. That's kind of embarrassing. You look back to see what made you stumble. You get back on your feet and you want to be more careful now. I mean, if you stumbled because you stepped out on ice and you didn't know it was ice, now you're going to take more steps more carefully. If you tripped over a root, a tree root or something like that, you're going to pay attention. Okay, next time I come through, I'm not going to, I'm going to remember that's there and not tremble. You know, stumbling is something you do accidentally when you're being weak or inattentive, and when you've done it, you wish you had not. That's the attitude of a Christian towards sin. I don't want to sin. Why? Because I'm committed to Christ. Commitment to Christ means I'm committed to obeying him. He wants me to love, I want to love. Whenever I do something unloving, something un, uh, you know, that's not what God wants, that's stumbling, and I'm not happy about it. I'm embarrassed of it. I make resolves to try to not do that again. I may do it again, but I'm not because I want to. I don't want to. That's the point. As a Christian, I do not want to sin. Now, part of me does. Obviously, the Bible says the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. Yeah, your flesh has desires and the spirit has desires. This is, of course, Galatians 5, 17. The, the spirit has desires against the flesh. The flesh has desires against the spirit. These are contrary to one another, so you don't do what you want to do. That's why we stumble. Because there is something in us that wants evil, but it's not who I am. It's my physical body. It has its desires. It's my flesh. But in me, I've made a decision in my heart. I'm identified as a follower of Christ, not identified as a carnal person who just wants to follow my flesh. And so because my identity is a follower of Christ, then when my flesh trips me up, I'm not happy because I've gone against what I've determined. I'm not being what I am committed to. Uh, there's several times when John says in 1 John, whoever's born of God does not commit sin. Now, some of those verses are softened a little bit in the modern translation saying does not practice sin, and that's, that's okay. But in the, in the Greek, he specifically says, we don't sin. If you're born of God, you don't sin. If you're really a Christian, you don't sin. But that's concerning because maybe I'm not a Christian because I sometimes do sin. 
And a lot of people have gotten a little nervous when they read those verses. Now, John knows that Christians sometimes sin because he says in chapter 2, verse 1, I write this so you don't sin, but if anyone does, we have an advocate with the Father. So he's realistic. Yeah, sometimes Christians do sin, but I'm writing so you don't. The Christian life is a life that's not sinning. And you do sometimes, but, and we have an advocate with the Father. But what do we do then? If, if I stumble and I'm not walking in the light, how do I get back in the light? Well, he says in John, 1 John 1, verse 7, um, or actually it's verse 8, he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Now, if I say I don't sin, if I say I don't have not sin in me, if I say I haven't sinned, I'm lying. I have sinned. I do have sin in me. I do have that, that danger in my, mem- in my flesh that I, it will that it'll drag me down if I'm not careful. And when it does drag me down, I need to confess it. If I confess my sins, he's faithful and just to forgive me my sins. Uh, he's, he's not ogrely about it, but he wants me to be open about it. Because remember what it means to be in the light and in the darkness? Remember John chapter 3, where it says, this is the condemnation that light is coming to the world, but men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he that walk, comes to the light, or he says, he that is uh, of God comes to the light, that his deeds may be seen, that they're wrought in God. In other words, if you are sinning and you don't want anyone to know you're sinning, you, you go back in the shadows where they can't see. You don't, you don't tell the truth about it. You hide the fact that you're sinning. Walking in the light means I don't hide the fact that I'm sin. Okay, I did sin. If I say I didn't sin, I'm lying. I confess my sin. That's being in the light. And now, as soon as I say that, we lapse into darkness. It's funny, we, we didn't lose all the power. Yeah. That's right. We're children of light. You're not. Okay. Yeah, strange that we lose some power and yet retain other power. Is that on one breaker or in the other parts on another breaker? Yeah, I don't know. Hmm. Or is there a power strip that went out? Hmm. 
So you can pause to meditate on these things for a moment while before we go further. A lot. <clears throat> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, at the end of the school. Testing, one, two, testing, testing. Is that working? Have we just lost lighting, or is it stopped recording too? Huh. Well, we don't. We don't have sound on the recording. Well, we have these individual ones. Are they're on battery? They're all. These are all It's everything on that side. Well, these lights and stuff too on that wall. Yeah. Got a question? Living in Alabama, now, like living in Alabama with a lot of the Southern Baptists, and then you have some of like the people bringing in newer stuff, and then you have like the Church of Christ. The concept of Gnosticism is so much fun to insert there. It's 
Oh, yeah. Hey. Good. Oh, this one went out. It did, but it's rebooting. There we go. Yeah, it's because it, okay, so there is power on here. This, this one is live. I can get this down here. Don't unwind it. Don't pull it out here. What's this other? Testing, testing, one, two. Okay. Let's, let's continue. Whatever you were saying. Yeah. Don't you all go with that. Yeah. <laughs> so, John is saying that walking in the light requires that we're, among other things, being transparent and honest about what we really are and not pretending to be sinless, not pretending to be more spiritual than we are, but being just real. But that's when we fall. You know, when we fall, we need to confess. Uh, and we do fall. But he's writing so that we don't. He's saying, I write these things so you don't sin. Now, I said that this is a book about assurance of salvation. And you find again and again and again throughout the book him saying, by this we know. This is how we know. What? By this we know that we've passed from death unto life. By this we know that he abides in us and, and we abide in him. In other words, 
This is how we know that we're Christians. And since there are going to be some people who think they're Christians and will only find out at the day of judgment that they weren't, uh, it's pretty important for us to run this test. Uh, you know, how, how do I know? Well, John tells us how we know. And he gives us four tests. You know, this is a little bit like the upper room discourse in John chapters 13 through 16, because as you may recall, Jesus brought up several subjects repeatedly, but kind of came back to them and kind of, they're kind of random in a way. James is like that in his book. James, you know, he'll have several favorite subjects. He'll come to them at different times and you just encounter them at different points. It's not as if he's got a, an outline. Okay, let's take point number one. Okay, done with that. Let's do point number two. Done with that. Let's go to three. It'd be nice if it was laid out that way. But that's not how Jesus taught in the upper room. That's not how some of the epistles are written. Some are. Uh, like Paul usually organizes his epistles in a very logical manner. Uh, but 1 John isn't that way. 1 John is going to repeat four different points at various places in the book. And these are the four points that we could call a fourfold test of whether you're a genuine Christian, whether you really are a believer, a saved person. And there can be nothing more important than that to know. Because I do believe that in American evangelicalism, we have brought a lot of people into the church on inadequate teaching that has not really told them what being a Christian is about. And they have been assured that they are. Let me just tell you this. I was uh, trained when I was uh, in a, t a teenager. I, I was a counselor of the Billy Graham Crusade in Anaheim, California, and, and you had to go through their counselor training to be a counselor at their crusades. So when I was 15, I went through the Billy Graham counseling thing, and, and, but I didn't learn anything that I hadn't learned from other books because I'd, I'd been witnessing to people for years before that. I'd been witnessing since I was a child to my friends. And I, my dad had a lot of books about evangelism and stuff, so most of what I learned from the training I had read elsewhere. And one of the things that's strongly emphasized in American evangelicalism is if you lead someone to the Lord, you need to make sure they have assurance of salvation. You don't want them to have any doubts about it. And so we were taught, after you manage to get someone to agree to say the sinner's prayer, you need to ask, so are you saved? Now, almost everybody is expected to answer, I hope so. That's just the way people are. They don't want to be too overconfident. This is new to them. They just said a prayer. You know, they don't, they're new to this whole thing. And they Generally, if you say to someone who just says sinner's prayer, are you saved? They would normally say, I hope so. So we were instructed to take 1 John 5.13, which says, these things I've written to you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Okay? You believe in the name of the Son of God, you can know you have eternal life. So if someone said, I hope so, we were supposed to read that verse to them. Uh, I've written this to you who believe on the Son of God, that you may know. So, do you believe in the Son of God? Yes. Are you saved? A lot of them would still say, I hope so. We weren't supposed to settle for that. It's not enough to let them say, I hope so. You've got to make them say, yes, I am. You're not allowed to send them home without them having this robust assurance that they are truly saved. Now, I can appreciate this, you know, the reason for wanting people to have that, that assurance. But frankly, if you're asking them and they don't know, maybe they're not. When, when you are converted, the God who created the universe comes and lives inside of you. And his presence is self-announcing. And 
frankly, uh, it'd be strange if that happened and you didn't know it. He doesn't come sneaking in. He comes in to take charge. He comes in and invades your life. And John actually indicates uh, a number of times in the epistle that this is uh, really what, what he calls having the witness, the witness of the Spirit in you. And um, if I could just find an example of this. Um, yeah, there's a number of times when the Holy Spirit in us is said to bear witness to it. But uh, there's different ways he speaks about this. But possessing the Holy Spirit is, in fact, one of the tests of being a true Christian, that the Holy Spirit has come to be in you. Now, I will say this. In Romans chapter 8, Paul said that the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. And that being so, let me see if I can give you that verse too. Um, it's... There we go. Verse 16, Romans 8, 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. Okay? So if we're born again, the Holy Spirit has come into us and he bears witness to us. He testifies to us. He proclaims to us that we are his children. That our spirit, his spirit, communicating, testifying that we're the children of God. So the first evidence that conversion has taken place is, in fact, that the Spirit dwells in you. So in 1 John chapter 2, verse 20, 1 John 2, 20, he says, but you have the anointing by the Holy One, and you have knowledge. Now, you have the anointing of the Holy One. The anointing is the reference to the Holy Spirit. And in verse 27, he uses that same expression. 2, 27 in 1 John for the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. Now notice, the anointing of the Holy Spirit teaches you. Jesus did say in John 16 to his disciples, I have many things to tell you that I can't, you're not ready for them now, but when the Holy Spirit comes, he will guide you and teach you all things and guide you into all truth. But certainly, if he says, you don't need, because the anointing is in you, you don't need anyone to teach you, then I shouldn't need anyone to teach me that I'm a Christian. In other words, if he has come into me and he's teaching me things, one of the things he's going to teach me is that I'm a son of God. That's, he bears witness to that fact. And if I don't know that, then maybe he's not there. We, we need people who are truly converted, and the Spirit has come and Paul said to the Thessalonians, we know, brethren, your true election of God, because when the word of God came to you, it didn't come in word only, but in power and much conviction and in the Holy Spirit. In other words, there are people who, when the word of God comes to them, it just kind of goes like water off a duck's back. They hear the words, goes in one ear and out the other. But he says, when our word came to you, it didn't come in word only, it came in power and much conviction and in the Holy Spirit. And, and if, when that happens, you don't have to take them to John, uh, 1 John 5, 13 or any other verse to tell them they're saved. The Holy Spirit tells them that. And if, if the Holy Spirit doesn't tell them they're saved, I'm not sure I have the authority to tell them they are. Because maybe they're not yet. Just because they said a prayer 
The Bible doesn't say that everyone who says a prayer is born again. That's not how people got saved in the Bible. You don't have anyone saying a sinner's prayer to get saved in the Bible, except perhaps the thief on the cross who said, Lord, remember me when you come into, my, into your kingdom. He didn't, it wasn't exactly a sinner's prayer, but he did confess Christ as Lord, and he was saved. The point here is, though, just because we get someone to say a prayer, that's not enough to know whether they really surrendered to Christ. You don't know what's going on in their heart. And if the Holy Spirit didn't come and, and testify to them, well, we shouldn't be too sure that, that he's there yet. And going on in 1 John, in chapter 3, verse 24, 1 John 3, 24 says, Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him, and by this we know that he abides in us. So how do I know if I'm in Christ? How do I know if he's in me? By the Spirit whom he has given us. That's how we know. We know it because he's given us the Spirit. Likewise, in chapter 4, in verse 13, he says, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us of his Spirit. So possessing the Holy Spirit is one of the four ways that we know for sure that we're believers. Now, why do I say one of the four ways? Why wouldn't that be enough? Why wouldn't it be enough that people say, ah, I'm, I'm convinced now that I'm saved, I have this inward conviction? Well, because it's not always the case that an inward confidence would be caused by the Holy Spirit. After all, we can mistake whether an impression we have is God or not. Think of how, if you're in charismatic circles, as I have been for 50 years, people are always saying, I think, the, you know, the Lord told me this, the Lord told me that, and half the time they're wrong. You know, how many prophets were there that prophesied that Donald Trump was going to be reelected? Lots of them. Some of them have repented, fortunately, but some have not. They claim the Holy Spirit's talking, and that's the thing is, well, you can mistake the voice of the Spirit, but you cannot be without it. It's possible for someone to say, yes, I feel, I feel regenerated. I feel like I have the Spirit. But there are other evidences that test to see if, if it's really the Spirit or something else. If it's just emotion, it might not be the Holy Spirit. But if there's no testimony of the Spirit, well, then that's, that's a significant missing element. And so in chapter 4, 13, he says, by this we know that we abide in him. He's going to give us other reasons too. And he and us, because he has given us the Spirit. And he says also in chapter 5, in verse 10, whoever believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. Yeah, Paul said the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. So John agrees with that. If you're born again and you don't sense inwardly that anything has changed, well, that's something to, to send you back to the drawing board and say, did I really surrender to Christ? Did I really, did I really take that step into the kingdom of God out of the power of darkness? Some think they have and have not. So, I mean, test yourself. In 2 Corinthians 13, Paul says, examine yourselves. See if you are in the faith. You know, it's not a bad suggestion. I think probably everyone needs to do that to make sure their conversion is not something that was just, <laughs> just emotional. But there should be a sense, a conviction, a strong assurance uh, from the Spirit that we have become followers of Christ. Now, another test, there's four tests. One is the Holy Spirit. Another test is that we believe in Christ. See, if someone thinks they're saved, but they don't believe in Christ, obviously then what they're feeling isn't genuinely 
the Holy Spirit. And believing, what is it we have to believe about Christ? Well, there's a few things. In chapter 2, verse 20, um, excuse me, verse 23. 1 John 2, 23 says, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whosoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So, obviously, you have to believe or confess the truth about Jesus. If you reject the truth about Jesus, well, you, you're not a Christian. Likewise, as you read over into chapter 4, verse 2, he says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus Christ uh, is not from God. So again, you have to believe that Jesus is the Christ, which is the Messiah, which means the King, the anointed King. You profess Jesus as your King, your Lord, and, uh, and that he's come in the flesh. Of course, we don't have so many people denying that particular doctrine as they did when the Gnostic issue was big. But nonetheless, it's what you believe and what you confess. In chapter 4, verse 15, he says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So, confessing that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, of course, a lot of people would say Jesus is the Son of God, but they don't mean the same thing the Bible means, because sometimes angels are called sons of God. In Job, even we are called sons of God, you know, in the Bible. In, 1 John, or in John 1.12, as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God. So, what does it mean to confess that Jesus is the Son of God? Clearly, it means the unique Son of God in the sense that Christian theology speaks of him, that he is the one and only son who came down from the Father. And it says in chapter 5, verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah has been born of God. And then he says in verse 5, who is he who overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So, believing... Believing that Jesus is the Messiah, believing he's the Son of God, believing he came in the flesh. That's, in other words, Christian theology, Christian belief about Jesus. If you don't believe any of those things about Jesus, you're not a Christian, no matter how much you feel inside that you are. But if you do believe those things and you have the witness of the Spirit within, well, then that's, you're, you're in, you've got good, good reason to believe you're a true Christian. But there's a couple more tests. And all the tests have to, have to pertain in order for you to truly be sure, because if, if uh, let's say we have one or two of these tests, but we strike out on one or two of them, well then, you know, we've got something deficient there. there we're supposed to have, this is the holistic uh, experience of being a, a Christian we're talking about here. So the, uh, <clears throat> the next test is, the righteousness test. Righteousness means living righteously. Now, I realize in Christianity we understand something called imputed righteousness, justification by faith, that when we put our faith in Christ genuinely, we are counted as righteous in the sight of God. That is true. Paul talks about that. John, on the other hand, tells us that righteousness, if we possess it, is it shows in righteous behavior. 
If you're born again, you're a different person than you were before. If you're a child of God, you act like a child of God, not, not like a child of the devil. And therefore, sin is foreign to you now. You, it's, not, you it's not that you never do it, but it goes against your grain. It's not what you are oriented toward. You're oriented toward righteousness, not toward sin. And we read in chapter 2, this is our third test, the righteousness test. Chapter 2, verse 3, and by this we know that we have come to know him. Okay, you want to know for sure if you've come to know him? You want to know for sure if you're con converted? If we keep his commandments, whoever says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected, and by this we know that we are in him. So we want to know if we're in him. We want to know if we know him. He says, well, if you say you know him and you don't keep his commandments, you don't. You're lying. Because people who do know him do keep his commandments. This is just a repeat of what Jesus said in the upper room. He said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. He it is that has my commandments and does them. You know, he it is that loves me. And my father will love him and we will come and make our home with him. That's what he said in the upper room. Keeping his commandments, Jesus' commandments. This is not talking about the Ten Commandments or the Old Testament law. This is talking about Jesus' commandments. When Jesus gave the Great Commission in Matthew 28, the commission as he gave it was, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. When you make a disciple, you get them converted and baptized. Now they're a Christian. Now you teach them to observe everything Jesus said because they'll want to. If their heart has changed, they want to obey God. They don't know intuitively what he said to do. That has to be taught. But they are oriented toward obedience. And therefore, they'll hunger to know what, what pleases God. What do I need to do? How do I need to change? What, what does God want from me? Well, we teach them. Here's what Jesus commanded. Do that. Do what Jesus commanded. And so he said, if anyone says they know him and they don't keep his commandments, presuming they know, presuming they know them, you teach his commandments to them as a part of discipling them, and they keep them habitually. And anyone who doesn't is a liar. Okay? And he says, by this we may know that we are in him. Well, I'd like to know that. I'd like to know that I'm in him, because that's what salvation involves. All right? If you look down at chapter 2, verse 29. Chapter 2, verse 29 says, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Practicing righteousness. He's not talking about imputed righteousness that's kind of a, uh, a legal, uh, you know, status on God's ledger in heaven. He's talking about how do you, I know if I'm really born of him? Well, you, everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. And practicing righteousness is obeying. His commandments. In chapter 3, he's got a lengthy section on this. In chapter 3, verse 6, he says, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Now, have you met people who, after they accepted Jesus into their heart at an altar call, they just went on back you know, in sin? They kept partying the same way on the weekends. They kept living with their boyfriend or their girlfriend. They kept doing the same things, kept, you know, 
blaspheming, swearing, nothing changed. Well, guess what? They haven't seen him or known him. They're not believers. They're not saved. Someone may have told them they are. Their pastor may have told them they are because they jumped through a hoop. You don't get saved by jumping through a hoop. You, you, you get saved by committing your life to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, which means from now on I'm identified as belonging to God with one purpose only, and that is to glorify God and obey Him. Now, if someone is keeping on sinning, he says, they don't know Him. They've never known Him. And it says in little children, verse 7, let no one deceive you. In other words, you could easily be deceived about this. Let me make sure you're not. We need to ask, am I deceived? Well, let's just see. Let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. As he, that is God, is righteous. Now, what he's saying is, we, we know that, you know, we are righteous before God by faith. That's a, that's a legal standing. That's justification by faith. And therefore, if I have true faith in Christ, I'm born again, I can say I'm righteous before God with the righteousness of Christ. And John says, great. And that'll show if that is really true. The one who really is righteous, and that's what you say you are, will show it by practicing righteousness. If you don't practice it, you don't have it. If you keep sinning, living in sin, and you're not living the righteous, obedient life, he says, well, you're, you got no business saying you're righteous, imputed or otherwise. Truly, if you have the righteous status with God, it is manifested in your righteous practice of your life. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The devil wants you to sin. That's a work of the devil. Jesus came to destroy that. It says in Matthew chapter 1, the angel spoke to Joseph and said, his name shall be called Jesus because he'll save his people from their sins. We sometimes think of it from the penalty of their sins. No, he came to save us from our sins. We're in bondage to sin until we're set free. If the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. You're not in bondage to sin anymore. And so he's destroyed the works of the devil in your life. You still stumble, but you are not living in sin. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. How many times does he have to say this? For God's seed, that's Christ, abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. That's easy. It's evident. Who's a child of God? Who's a child of the devil? Well, the one who practices who does not practice righteousness, that, that's not one of the God's children. So this is a true test of conversion. In chapter 3 and verse 22, he says, Whatever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Okay? So we keep his commandments. In chapter 5, verse 3, it says, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Now, this is an important thing. He has said that a truly born-again person does not practice sin. In the Greek, it just says, does not sin. And this is true. Although we do sometimes sin, it can still be said, I don't sin, 
if I'm describing my life. Here, think of this sentence. A greedy person, let's just say a miser, he does not waste money. Okay? Why? Because as a miser, he despises the idea of wasting money. He doesn't just let money go easy. He'll spend money if he thinks it's a good investment, but he's not going to waste it because his nature is to be miserly. Or we could say a vegetarian doesn't eat meat. Right? That's the very definition of a vegetarian. Vegetarians don't eat meat. And yet I've known some vegetarians who broke down and ate a little bit of meat on occasion. They were sorry they did, and they resumed their vegetarianism after that. But, and, and misers have sometimes accidentally wasted money. They've been caught in a scam, or they've you know, wasted money that they didn't intend to waste, and they hate it because it goes against their nature. You can say a miser doesn't waste money or a vegetarian doesn't eat meat because that is their commitment and that is their lifestyle. But that doesn't mean they never succumb to temptation or they, or they never break the pattern. And when it says Christians do not sin, if you're born of God, you don't sin, it means that's your pattern. You don't sin. You hate, you hate sinning. Your heart doesn't... Uh, getting truly saved will spoil you for sinning. You can enjoy it when you're not saved. You can't enjoy it when you're, not, when, when you're saved. You can be attracted to it. You can fall to it. You won't have anywhere near the pleasure you thought you'd have in it because it, your, your heart is protesting the whole time because you're a Christian. And when you're done, you'd want to kick yourself and wish you could turn the clock back and undo that because it's something you hate. That's the proof, one of the four proofs that you're born again. And he says, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and they're not burdensome. In other words, this is not a legalistic life. It's not burdensome to obey God. If you love him, this is the love of God. If I love God, my greatest desire is to please him. If I love my wife, my greatest desire <laughs> is that she'd be a happy wife, that I could do what makes her happy. If I find out that something I do irritates her or, or uh, makes her fearful or, or you know, resentful or something, well, I want to stop doing that. Because you, when you love someone, you want to make them happy. That's the very, almost the definition of love. You put their interests and their happiness ahead of your own by nature. So if you love God and he has commanded you, you think, oh, I want to do that. That's not a burden. What you do out of love is not burdensome. If you don't love God, keeping the commandments of God is really a burden. And many of the Jews, like the Pharisees, Jesus said, I know you, you don't have any love for God in you, but they were kept his commandments, and to them it was a big burden. Because they didn't love God, but they felt legalistically they had to keep his commandments. But if you love God, you keep his commandments, and it's not burdensome to you. It's like if a woman goes to work for, a, let's say, a single dad, a widower, as his house cleaner and, and, and nanny for his kids and things like that. She works for a living. She cooks the meals, she does the laundry, she watches the kids. But if she falls in love with him and he falls in love with her and they get married, she still does those things. But it's different. She was a paid servant working for a living before. Now she does many of the same things, but she does them happily because she's in love with her husband. And she takes on the role of a wife out of love rather than as a paid servant. In 1 John 5, 18, it says, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. 
So there's a lot of things. If you're born of God, you don't keep on sinning. You can know you're saved by the fact that you're obeying God and it's not burdensome. Your life has been transformed. Your orientation and your interests are transformed. I'm not interested in pleasing myself. It's not I, but Christ. I want to please him. That's the only thing that makes sense and that, is, that makes me happy, is pleasing him. That's, that's proof I've changed. That's proof I'm born again. His law is written in my heart. It's not just imposed on me from without. So what do we got? We've got the testimony of the Holy Spirit living in us is a test of true conversion. There's, of course, the fact that we believe in Jesus and the right things. Thirdly, there's that we obey him. We live the righteous life. We keep his commandments. What's the fourth thing? Well, this is an offshoot of the last one, and that is that we love one another. Because Jesus said, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. So certainly, it's a test. of it's, it, We have assurance of salvation from this, uh, this factor. So... We see in chapter 2, verse 9 and following, this will be verse 9 through uh, 11, whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So if you're walking in the light, you don't hate your brother. You love your brother. If you skip on down to chapter 3, verse, um, well, we could start at verse 10. It says, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. We just read this. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. So if you are born of God, you both practice righteousness and you love your brother. And he goes on, for this is the message that you've heard from the beginning that we should love one another. That's verse 11. In verse 14, he says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. We know we're saved. We know we're not in darkness. We know we've passed from death into life because we love the brethren. He says, whoever does not love remains in death. They have not passed from death into life if they don't love. They're still in death. But we know we've passed out of death into life because we do love. That's the test. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. You know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Again, love is not what you feel. It's what you do to another person. You lay down your life for them. That's an action. You might do it because you feel love for him too, but even at those times that you don't feel love, you still do it. That's love. Love is a choice. Emotion is not. Your emotions, you don't choose those. You can't. You can't make yourself feel something if that's not what you're feeling. But you can make yourself do something, whether you feel it or not. That's love. In verse 18, he says, little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. In other words, we don't, love is not something you talk about, it's something you do, your deeds. <clears throat> By this, we, sh we shall know that we are of the truth and assure our hearts before him, that is, by loving. 
in chapter 4, verse 7. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. Again, surefire test. Am I a Christian or not? Well, if I don't love, I don't know God. That's, I can say that I'm scriptural authority. And uh, verse 12, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Going down to verse 16, so we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. How can I have confidence that in the day of judgment, God won't say, I never knew you? Well, because I love. I know I've passed from death to life because I'm willing to lay down my life for the brethren. You know, when I was a teenager, when I first began to understand these things, I used to use, run a check on myself frequently and ask myself, is there anybody I know that I would not lay my life down for, literally, die for? If I could say there is someone I wouldn't die for, then I know I don't love them because that's love. And if I could say, no, I can't think of anyone that I wouldn't die for. In a pinch, you know, someone comes into the room, says, okay, I'm going to kill somebody here. Who's going to die? I guess you better take me, you know. I'll, I'll take, you know, I'll take the hit. Now, does that mean I'm a hero? No, I'd, I'd probably be very terrified. But it's what you do. Love is what you do. It's not what you feel. So, um, verse 20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment that we have from him, that whoever loves God must love his brother also. Now, I used to think that was a strange statement. Whoever, how can we love God, whom we've not seen, if we don't love our brother, whom we've seen? I used to think, well, that's a silly question. It's the very fact that I see my brother that often makes him very unlovable to me. God is somewhere out there. It's easy to kind of nebulously love some God that I know is out there. It doesn't, you know, I mean, but, but my brother, he's a little harder. He's, he's here in the flesh, and he's an annoyance to me. How, no. but, but see, if loving my, loving my brother doesn't mean don't be annoyed. You can't help being annoyed by things. If there's a mosquito around your ear buzzing when you're in bed and you can't find it, you're annoyed. People can be as annoying as mosquitoes, certainly. And you're not wrong to be annoyed. What you're wrong to do is let your annoyance devalue that person to the point that you think you're better than they are and that you deserve to live more than they do and that your needs and your desires are greater than theirs and more important than theirs. When you love somebody, it doesn't mean you're not annoyed by them. It means you recognize they are made in the image of God, too. They're as valuable to God as I am. Their needs, their desires, their interests have as much claim before God as, as mine do, and they should have claim on me because I'm God's servant. And uh, so annoyance, yes, I, I, I get annoyed by some people, but uh, I'm not allowed to not love them. Chapter 5 the second part of verse 1 says, Everyone who loves the Father 
loves whoever is born of him. Love me, you love me, you love my kid. You know, there are people whose children I, I'm not very close to, but their parents are my dear friends. And if the kids were in danger, the kids were in need, because of my love for their parents, I know their parents love them like I love my own kids. And therefore, I should recognize that out of love for their parents, I will love their kids, knowing how much the parents love them. And that's what he says. And who loves the father loves everyone who's born of him. You love somebody, you love their kids. By this we know that we love the children of God, verse 2, when we love God and obey his commandments. So those are the four tests. Sorry we had to breeze through them so fast. We actually have to do very briefly a treatment of the next two epistles too. But if, uh, if you ever wonder if somebody is a Christian or if you are, and it's a very healthy thing to wonder. You know, this idea that we need to, when we evangelize someone, make sure they have assurance of salvation before we send them off. I think, well, what if they're not saved? I don't want to give them a false assurance of salvation. I'll tell them how to know if they're saved, but I'm not going to tell them they are if they don't know it. You know, I mean, that's, it's not my place to give assurance of their salvation. It's God's place to give them assurance of it. And if they don't have that assurance, I may be hurting them by cramming it into them. You're saved, you're saved, you're saved. Well, maybe they're not. Here's the test. Test yourself. You, you decide if you're saved or not. And you might think, oh, but that's, that might cause someone to doubt their salvation. Yeah, that might be a very good thing for some people. They might not really be saved. It may be doubting their salvation may be a very important step in their coming to know that they're not saved and they need to be. Anyway, 2nd and 3rd John have some of the same themes, and we won't go into them in detail. Just uh, th there's some differences. Both of these are letters uh, addressed to individuals, maybe. Second John is addressed to someone called the elect lady. Now, who's the elect lady? It could be, uh, it could be uh, an actual woman. It'd be interesting that, to think it might be Mary, the mother of Jesus, because John you know, took charge of care for uh, Mary. Jesus at the cross committed the care of his mother to John. But it is said that these, these uh, epistles were written very late and very probably uh, Mary would have either been extremely old or dead by this time. He doesn't identify her as Mary, but it could be an actual woman that he knew, or it could be that he's symbolically referring to a church in a feminine form. In the scripture, the church, of course, is the bride of Christ, and it's, it's very possible that he's referring to a church as an elect lady in a, and, and he said he does say in chapter 13 verse 13 the, at the end he says the children of your elect sister greet you so he's he's with her elect sister and her children are sending greetings to this elect lady if these are two churches the elect here's a, I'm writing to this elect lady this church and this church is a sister church and the children of the Church are the children of the lady, as it were, the, the members of the church. And he says, the, the children of your elect sister greet you. He could just be saying, you know, everyone here in this church says hello too. And I'm writing to you, this church. And he talks about her, the elect lady's children. He said he was pleased to have encountered some of her children recently. And it was such a delight to see that they were walking in the truth. 
But then he, he warns her, whether it's a woman or a, a church, this cannot really be settled. There's different views, different scholars have, and it's just simply a difference of opinion. One cannot really settle it from the evidence we have. We don't know who the elect lady was. But uh, the main thing is he warns the elect lady against false teaching. Um, and that false teaching is uh, that of the Antichrist, the, uh, the deceivers. He says in verse uh, 7, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a, the deceiver and the Antichrist. Now notice the Antichrist is a one who denies that Jesus comes in the flesh. Back in 1 John chapter 2, John said, Whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ is Antichrist. Now, do you know that the word Antichrist is never found, for example, in the book of Revelation? It's never found in the book of Daniel. It's not found in any of Paul's writings. In fact, the word Antichrist is not found anywhere in the Bible except in 1 John and 2 John. Isn't that interesting? Because we hear about the Antichrist all the time in some eschatological setting, usually identified with the beast in Revelation 13 or the man of sin in 2 Thessalonians 2 or the little horn in Daniel. And maybe we may be right in making those identifications, but we should be aware the term Antichrist is never actually used in the Bible of those particular villains. Uh, it may be well to call them Antichrist, but the Bible doesn't. The Bible says whoever denies that Jesus has come in the flesh is Antichrist, is the Antichrist. Anybody. Anyone who denies that Jesus is the Messiah is the Antichrist. It's interesting that many people, Bible teachers teach that when the Antichrist comes, he's going to persecute the Jews in Israel. He's going to be anti-Semitic. But why? They're not Christ. They don't even believe in Christ themselves. They're not Christians. Uh, anti, he's not the anti-Jew. The term is the anti-Christ. Those who oppose Christ. By that definition, most Jews are anti-Christ. They deny that Jesus is the Messiah. That's the official position of Judaism, that Jesus is not the Messiah. So, I mean, in a sense, Antichrist is not a term used of anti-Jews. It's a term used of people who do not embrace the Christian teaching about Christ, which would include Jews and Gentiles of, of every religion. Uh, so that's just a, a point of fact from of scriptural data. Make of it anything you wish. And so, basically, he's telling her not to entertain these teachers, not to even uh, receive them into her house, verse 10, not to even send them an encouragement greeting. You don't want to participate with them by encouraging them or showing hospitality to them, these false teachers. And so that's why he writes to her. That's what he says to her. And that's about it. There's not much else of uniqueness in this book. It's so short. And likewise, uh, only slightly longer is 3 John, just a couple verses longer. And it doesn't have uh, a whole lot of content, but basically it's written to somebody named Gaius. Now, there's a number of people in the Bible named Gaius, and we don't know who this one was. John doesn't say what church he was in, what town he was in. Uh, he doesn't identify him by Gaius, son of so-and-so. He doesn't have anything except Gaius which is a very common name in the Roman Empire. It's even part of some of the emperor's names, Gaius. So this is essentially an anonymous person to us, but someone known to John. 
Now, Gaius is commended because he is showing hospitality to the traveling evangelists and ministers and, and apostles, apparently. He must put them up in his home. The problem is he's in a church that's kind of dominated by a, a rather rotten individual named Diotrephes. What we know about Diotrephes is it says he loved to have the uh, preeminence. He or it says here he likes to put himself first. That certainly is the wrong attitude for anyone in church leadership or anyone who's not in church leadership. To put yourself first is the opposite of being the servant of all. It's the opposite of being a true spiritual leader. This man has, he's ambitious. He likes to put himself first. He likes to have the preeminence. And he does not, he says he does not acknowledge our authority in verse 9. What? A church leader didn't acknowledge the authority of the apostle John, probably the last surviving apostle at this time. The apostles had special authority given by Jesus, and the whole church knew that, but this man was not accepting that. John actually says um, that when we have sent messengers to the church, that dietaries won't, won't uh, receive them, and he'll, if anyone in the church does receive them, he forbids them to, and he puts them out of the church. He, like, excommunicates people who welcome the apostles and their messengers. This guy's a, a total jerk. Now, we don't read if he's an elder or a pastor. In the early church, they didn't really have these offices clearly defined. Elders, sure, there were men who were elders in every church. Well, almost every church. There's some churches didn't have elders, and so... Titus was told to, you know, appoint them. When Paul and Barnabas were on their first missionary journey, they established churches uh, on their way out, away from home. Then as they came home, on their way back, they revisited these churches and appointed leaders. But those churches existed without leaders initially for a while. Some of the churches, you know, there might not be anyone who's qualified as an elder initially. In the Corinthian church, Paul wrote the longest letters to the Corinthian church in the Bible, and yet... He never mentions them having elders. But he does say in 1 Corinthians 16, 15, he says, you know the household of Stephanus, they were the first converts of the region. Submit to people like that because they are addicted to serving. He doesn't say submit to the elders. He almost talks as if there aren't any elders. Just submit to people like this who are servants. Yeah, they sometimes didn't have people that they'd appointed yet as elders. Eventually, all the churches seemed to have appointed elders, but the church could exist without appointed elders as long as it had people who were serving. And Demetrius uh, is a guy who has a good report. That's another guy, not Diotrephes, but the other one, verse 12. He says, Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also <clears throat> add our testimony. And you know that our testimony is true. So there's two people mentioned by name besides the recipient of the letter, Gaius. There's Diotrephes and there's Demetrius. Diotrephes, certainly a bad man, and yet exercising a, you know, a, a, a usurped and pretended authority in the church. There's another man who's a good man, Demetrius. Now, it may be that Demetrius is a man that John is sending with the letter. A lot of times when Paul would send a letter by somebody, he'd commend that person in the letter, saying, oh, this, you know, Trophimus is bringing you this, or Timothy is bringing you this, and, and they're good. You know, they're good people. Trust them. 
And John might have sent this letter by Demetrius, or alternatively, Demetrius might have just been a good, solid Christian in the church, maybe not holding any particular office. It may also be that Diotrephes didn't hold any particular office. It may be that no one held a particular office in the church, and so Demetrius just kind of shoved himself to the place of leadership. That's what people sometimes do. If there's no one appointed as leader, sometimes the most aggressive person just says, hey, I'm, I'm, t I'm in charge here now. And Demetrius might have been another man in the church, perhaps far more qualified to lead the church, uh, but maybe not pushing himself up that way. He's no, he doesn't desire to put himself first. But John commends him. But the main point he makes is that you need to distinguish between those who are good and those who are bad so you know who to imitate. He says in verse 11, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Don't imitate, and we might argue, don't follow the leadership of Diotrephes. He's not good. You can imitate Demetrius. He's a good role model. Now, we have to understand that in the early church, being the elder of a church or being a leader of a church was not primarily about being the CEO of a 501c3 corporation. They didn't have those back then, and they didn't have that kind of structure in the church. In the church, it was a family, not a corporation. The church is a family. Jesus told his disciples, don't let any of you be called father or rabbi because you're all brothers. It's family here. This is not a hierarchical institution like a corporation that's got a CEO and a board of directors. That's how modern churches are arranged, and unfortunately, sometimes the mentality of them is very businesslike too. But the early church was, Jesus forbade that. And most of the early churches didn't have that problem. We see diatrophies kind of beginning to be in the early church a problem in that way, trying to take charge, trying to be the boss. But when Peter and Paul addressed the elders of the churches, he told them to be good examples to the flock. And in many cases, I mean, the elders also had to teach, but they taught by example as well as by word. They had to be sounds doctrinally so they could teach the church properly, but they also had to be role models. Why? Because younger Christians, if they're going to follow Jesus, they, sometimes it helps if they can see Jesus with skin on. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11, 1. He said, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Okay? Uh, or, or just imitate Christ. Don't worry about me. But if you've got problems understanding what Christ is like, well, I'm imitating him. You can imitate what I'm doing because you'll be safe then. Every church leader should be able to say that. Many church leaders would not. They'd be embarrassed to say that. But why? Shame on them. Every church leader should be able to say, well, if you're not sure how to live the Christian life, you want to be like Jesus. If you're not sure what he's like, kind of follow my example because I'm following him. You can kind of take my lead. Richard Wormbrandt told about a missionary who had been very much a servant and a, very sacrificial with a group of people who, a tribe of people that were uh, troublesome, but he was patient and loving and caring for them and, and ministered to them. And an old lady in, in the tribe said, what is this Jesus like that you've told us about? And he said, well, he's like me. And she said, then I love him. You know, I, I don't know very many ministers who'd feel comfortable if someone said, what is Jesus like? They'd say, well, he's like me. 
they would feel like, oh, isn't that being a little too self-aggrandizing? It shouldn't be. You should be like Jesus. That's what Christians are supposed to be, especially the leaders. The people who are made leaders of the church should be people who actually are like Jesus, more than most anyway. So they can say, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And that's what John says. You've got Diotrephes, a bad example. Demetrius, he's a good example. Imitate the good, don't imitate the bad. The principle of leadership is not that you take charge, but that you do what others need to do so they can imitate you and you're leading by example. Uh, and, and it's a very different kind of kingdom than the worldly kingdoms. That's why Jesus said, the rulers of the Gentiles, they exercise authority, top-down authority over them, but it shall not be done that way with you. Don't do that. He's talking to the apostles, for Christ's sake. He's saying, don't be like that. You want to be chief, you have to be the slave of all. Show them how, how to be servants, because that's what Christ-like is. So that's how John speaks to these uh, different audiences.